I'm so honored and excited to have Jessica Landert, an award-winning teacher and author of multiple books. In this particular episode, we'll be learning about her new book called Making Americans, stories of historic struggles, new ideas, and inspiration in immigrant education. Jessica Lander, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Would you tell us briefly how you spend your days and where you spend your days? Absolutely. So, um, and first off, just thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really powerful to learn about your work and to follow your work. So it's exciting to be on the podcast here. Um, I am a teacher of recent immigrant and refugee students in Lowell, Massachusetts in the United States. Um, I teach um, students from about 30 different countries, from uh, Colombia to the Democratic Republic of the Congo to Cambodia. And I teach history and civics. Um, and so I get to spend my days working with and learning from my remarkable students from all across the country, uh, all across the world, sorry, all across the world. Um, and it is so powerful to watch them build connections and friendships with each other and with our learning, and then also take that learning out into the community. So is your, are, are your classes mostly like beginners and like immigrant students or refugee students? So I have students who have maybe been in the country for five years and I have students who have arrived maybe three to five months ago. Um, so I've got a, um, all recent immigrant and refugee students, but um, have been in the country at varying um, amounts of time um, and they have very different backgrounds um, and very sometimes very different journeys in uh, coming to the US. Speaking about uh, their different experiences, can you tell me a story about teaching that has really influenced your practice to this day? I mean, there are so many, um, but I, I'll share with you a, a small one um, that I think is indicative of some of the work that we do together in our class. Um, it's actually uh, the story that opens uh, my new book. And it's the story of my student, Wilson, who um, he was a student I met um, my first year teaching at Lowell. And um, I've been a teacher for years earlier, teaching both in other parts of Massachusetts and uh, abroad but it was my first year teaching in Lowell and Wilson came into my classroom early that year because during lunch, he didn't have anyone to sit with and he didn't feel like he had uh, a community or that he belonged uh, yet in the school. And so Wilson and I started having lunch together and it was just him and I, and we'd use my desk as our table and I'd ask him about his classes and about his family and, uh, got to know what Wilson was really excited about and the classes he liked and the classes that were hard. And then one day Wilson asked me um, how I learned to use chopsticks because I ate every day um, my lunch with a pair of bamboo chopsticks. And from that conversation, um, found out that Wilson loved everything Japanese. He was actually teaching himself um, uh, Japanese at night. He, it was a, a love rooted in anime, but it had spread to his diving into history and to language and to culture. And so we started talking about all things Japanese. My parents had spent time working in Japan when they were younger, right out of college. 
Um, and we have friends and family in Japan and so have um, had the, the opportunities to visit. And then in addition to those conversations as the semester was going on, Wilson started drawing other people into our classroom for lunch. And so slowly our classroom filled with students from around the world eating lunch together. And some of them would be working on homework and some of them would be chatting, some would be listening to music. And also they'd be bringing in foods and sharing those foods. So I had a Vietnamese student who would bring in bowls of pho and pass around her spoon. Or one of my um, students from Burma, Korean refugee, would bring really, really spicy fishes. And like not many people could take, like, could really handle the spice, but she'd pass around the spicy fishes. Or a student from Lebanon would bring in baklava. And so students were trying foods from each other and watching Wilson become more comfortable and build more friendships with his classmates during this lunch period. And then at some point, Wilson um, asked some of his now friends, will they teach him how to use chopsticks? And, and so he's learning how to use chopsticks and he's borrowing my chopsticks or their chopsticks. And then one day he comes in and he has such a grin on his face and it's during lunch. And he's like, Miss Lander, look what I have. And he pulls from his bag a huge bag of chopsticks because our supermarket um, doesn't sell chopsticks like in single pairs. You can only buy them in bulk. And so he has this huge bag of chopsticks and everyone in the class like gathers around him and he's rips open the bag and he's passing out chopsticks left and right. And then everyone is trying chopsticks. Everyone wants to be a part of learning. And they're um, bringing in my, my Vietnamese and my Cambodian and my uh, Burmese students to act as teachers. How do we use the chopsticks? They're trying to pick all sorts of things up, French fries, pencils, um, pizza, crusts, all sorts of things. And this is a, a small moment, but I think it speaks to some of the really powerful things that I see every day in my classroom of the, the community that my students and I create together, um, that they're creating together with each other, the, the just deep curiosity they have um, for each other, for each other's traditions, um, to learn with each other and from each other, the ways in which my students are often teachers for each other in so many different ways, whether it be language, um, whether it be teaching how to use chopsticks, um, and the ways in which they create a, a space where they feel comfortable and safe to try and to explore and to build that community and those connections. Um, and so while it's a, it's a small story, um, I, I think it just, it's stuck with me for so many years of that beautiful moment. I can see it in my head of Wilson bringing in that bag and passing out the chopsticks and everyone around the room trying things with chopsticks and just that the power of this classroom that's filled with students from all around the world learning and teaching with each other. Um, what a really beautiful story. It's really about the relationships that you create with the students and with each other, how they brought each other in. So a lot of your students uh, come from community-based cultures where it's all about the collectivism. So, but they come into an American school system where it's very individualistic. Like, how do they? How do you bridge the two cultural differences? 
Um, I think I, so I see a lot of that support for each other and that collectivism in my class that just is inherent to how we see success in our class. Um, and that's particularly true. You were talking about like, how long have my students been in the US? And so I have students who might've been here five years and I have students who might have been here five months. And I just see so much generosity um, between my students um, that my students share with each other. So if a student is struggling because they are really still mastering the, the key elements of English, uh, another student will translate and not in a way that's like then preventing that new student from learning, but in a way that's helping them access the material and access the community that is in our classroom. And so I just like every day see so many ways that my students are stepping up for each other and watching out for each other. Um, and so I think that collectivism comes in there. Um, and that's how we're able to do this work. And also like what a powerful message and sense of how we learn um, that's coming through that we come we, we learn best when we get to learn with each other and we get to learn from each other and we support each other on that work and so as much as possible I'm also trying to infuse collaboration into some of the major projects and works we do in the class um, we'll spend the second half of the semester doing a semester-long civics project, action civics project, where my students will tackle a challenge that they care about in their community and then work with local politicians and leaders and um, other organizations in our community to try to create real systemic lasting change. And that work can only be done by working as a community. Um, you just, you can't have the same impact and effect uh, working as a single person. And so we talk and practice intentionally how we work together and how do we collaborate. And we talk about the challenges and also the strengths of that. Um, and so I try as much as possible to bring that right into like the, the academic content that we're learning, but, but also, I mean, it's all the small ways every day where students are supporting each other um, so that they can be learning together. They can be learning from each other. They can be pushing themselves to grow. Your class sounds so uh, culturally responsive because you're teaching them the way they like to learn and they, the way they like to learn is with each other because they're from collective societies. And so how do you do it when they're from diff such different communities, like nationalities? I, I mean, there's, my students are sort of drawing back to that, that first image and story of Wilson and the Chopsticks. Um, my students are deeply curious. Um, they've lived in, many countries and um, have uh, experienced many different political systems, cultural systems. Um, they're all coming here and creating new homes here. Uh, but I, I see such immense curiosity in my students. And so it, it comes naturally really that they wanna learn from each other and that they understand that systems might be different that the way that their, their peer, their friend, has uh, learned or thinks about things might be different than the way they do because they've also experienced living and working in multiple cultures and countries. Um, and so I think that makes them um, really open to understanding and recognizing that there are different perspectives and then seeing and appreciating those different perspectives, um, which I mean is so powerful for our work in our history class. Um, we're we're constantly 
really wanting to ensure that our students are thinking about uh, different perspectives, are thinking about how different people might view or understand perhaps the same historical situation. Um, and so my students have those strengths that they bring um, because of their lived experience into our classroom that makes it maybe easier um, to access and think about those different perspectives in our academic learning, as well as in building connections with each other. Their life experiences make them more open-minded. So uh, every book has a seed, and what was the seed for this book? Um, I don't think it will be any surprise, my students. <laughs> so, I mean, I am just so tremendously inspired by them every day in the work we do in those small moments, like the one with Wilson and his uh, classmates learning how to use chopsticks, um, in the work we'll do with the Action Civics Project that I was just talking about, where I'll see my students going out and creating real positive change in our community. Um, my students are about to embark on an op-ed project where they're going to tackle issues they care about and learn how to write an op-ed. And then uh, a collection of those will be featured in our local city paper um, published um, this two-page spread. Um, and there's so many different projects and works my students do. We just finished up a cookbook project where uh, my students chose a favorite family recipe and then they went home where they called a grandma or a grandpa in Brazil and texted an aunt in Cambodia. Um, to get those recipes, they translated that recipe, they then wrote stories of their migration, stories of what that food means to them. And that cookbook will come out this week, actually. Um, and so I'm sharing it and presenting to my students this week. They're all going to be published authors um, on Friday, uh, which is really exciting. But all this is to say that my students do remarkable things, both in our classroom and uh, in our communities. And it's in those big projects. And it's also in those small moments, like with Wilson and his classmates and the chopsticks. And they are, it's, it's both such a joy and such an inspiration to work with them. Um, and what I found in working with them too is a desire to understand how schools can do better to support our students, um, to make sure that our schools are seeing all the beautiful and tremendous strengths that our students bring to our schools. And to make sure that our students who are coming from all around the world and creating new homes here, feel a strong sense of belonging, that they feel that um, they are included, they're welcomed, um, that they are valued in their new communities um, so that they're best able to thrive. And so the book was really a way for me to think about how we can create schools that can better support and nurture them and their many, many strengths. Um, and that led me to actually take a year off from school um, a number of years ago now, three years ago, and set out across the country to learn from other educators and to sit in the classrooms of others to see what were the innovative strategies and approaches, uh, but also to dive into the history to understand how our schools have been shaped by our past. And then for me, the most important part, um, the heart of the book um, as a teacher is to sit with uh, about seven of my students. Um, so I sat with seven of my students, asked them to be my teacher and learn from them about both their journeys to the US and their experience of our schools. Because if we're serious about reimagining immigrant education, we, we have to be learning from the past, we have to be learning from the present, and we really have to be learning from our students from the personal. Um, and it's with those three elements then, those three types of stories and these three um, voices that we're gonna be able to reimagine immigrant education. But 
the seed, the seed was in my classroom with my remarkable students. Well, no wonder why your bio, you were uh, uh, one of the uh, teachers of the year, teachers of the, yeah, you were, can you tell me about that? Um, so it's a huge honor. I was named um, a top 50 finalist for Global Teacher of the Year um, a year ago, and then a Massachusetts finalist for Teacher of the Year for Massachusetts this year. I mean, just hearing just the last 15 minutes of your conversation, I'm like, okay, I am bowing in the presence of a, of a master educator. <laughs> Thank you. But I think it's really, it's about learning from each other. I mean, um, I get to learn from you. I get to learn from so many teachers uh, across the country and the globe now. Um, and it's, we, I think so often teaching is isolating. Um, I think so often we feel as teachers that we are alone in our classroom with our students, which is powerful and wonderful. And I learned so much from my students, but it's also so powerful to learn from other educators. And so I know I have grown so much through the process of writing this book in being able to sit in the classrooms of others and learn from others. And I both found that really exciting for the work I was doing for my book, but also just really exhilarating as a teacher because I had this like list of notes for my book. And then I started writing this other list of, oh, I wanna try that in my classroom. And oh, oh, that strategy, let me try that in my classroom. And so I, I mean, it, this is work that can't be done alone, um, and the the success is not done alone. Um, and so I'm just deeply grateful to have this opportunity to learn from you and to learn from others. Um, and I would love to work to build stronger communities where we can be learning from each other on a more ongoing basis. Sounds like you need a Facebook group for just uh, new recent arrivals. It's a good idea. Um, I'll hold you to that. We should work on it together. <laughs> um, so there is a, you listed a few projects with your students. Can you list a few more and tell us about uh, those really innovative ideas? Um, sure. Um, so um, I are the projects we're doing. I do a lot of project based learning um, and try to really situate it within their study of history. Um, but I, I think too, my focus is, I mean, I'm someone who, who hates tests. I never did well on tests. I don't think they measure, uh, the success of students or knowledge of students very well. I understand why we have them and I, there are important reasons for them, but I do a lot of project-based learning in my class. I also think it allows us real, um, opportunities to iterate. And so say like the cookbook project I described, um, my students will, make probably 10 to 15 rounds of edits on their recipes and their stories. And that's, I see where the real learning happens is that taking a perhaps a small piece of text and turning it from okay to good to great. Um, and also trying to create projects where we are sharing it in the community. It was not till grad school for me where I was really asked to do work that impacted my community outside the classroom. And I remember it was actually an op-ed project and I took that op-ed project from my professor and uh, translated it to my high school classroom. That's the project we now do. Um, but I remember when he asked us to do this, how powerful it was for me to think about, oh, we, our learning should be impacting the community. We should be sharing with the community. It also elevates the work. Um, so when I do projects like the cookbook project with my students and we're in round like 12, um, the if a student's like, but isn't it done? 
it's okay, but you're sharing this with the community. You're going to be sending this to politicians. You're going to be sending this to leaders in our community. And don't you want it to be great? And they go, yeah, yeah, of course, absolutely. And it's really beautiful to watch them change from, because we don't often ask students to iterate in this way again and again and again. Um, but where their first two rounds of edits, maybe they'll turn and it'll be great. I'm done. Excellent. Goodbye. And I'm like, no, 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 we have more edits. And they're like, wait, what? We have more edits? And then by maybe like round 10 of edits, they'll text me. We have a, a school texting app and they'll text me and be like, hey, Miss Lander, just made another round of edits. Can you take a look? Send them back to me and I'll take a look at it. And they're like totally bought in on the importance of iteration, the importance of really making their work sing. And that's super powerful. So we do projects like the cookbook project or this op-ed project. Um, in another of my classes, um, we uh, study um, the history of diversity in the United States. We study key um, civil rights, um, Supreme Court cases and laws and movements. And in that class, um, we write a different type of book. Um, and we were a couple of years ago, back in 2018, figuring out what book, what stories we were gonna tell. And we were together thinking about how if we were studying American history, it was important to study those big movements, um, those laws, those change makers. But just as important, it was necessary for us to study um, all the small stories, all those small strands, that big history is made up of all the individual histories that we bring to it. And in addition to that, we were really grappling with uh, how some of my students felt that they belonged in the country, um, but weren't sure others thought they belonged or weren't sure themselves if they felt that they belonged. And so we set out to write a book for each student to claim their American identity um, and to be teachers in our community who better to redefine what it means to be American than the next generation. And so they set out to write this book, We Are America, where they each told a story of self that helped us as a community expand and deepen our understanding of what it meant to be American today. Um, with each of them being a teacher in this book. And we wrote that book in 2018, published like right at the um, beginning of 2019. And my students started talking about it in the community and they were talking to local press and on radio and at local universities. And at the end of the year, my students gathered, their class was done, their grades were in, many of them were graduating, but they gathered in my class one afternoon they were like, Ms. Lander, this work can't stop. We need to continue this work. Um, and of course, the semester was like done. They were graduating, they're going off to college and to work. Uh, but they believed that this was important to continue. And so that afternoon, we, in my classroom, we mapped out on the whiteboard what it would look like to take this project national. And what were the elements we'd have to do? We'd have to get um, support. We'd have to get national partners. We'd have to create an application. We'd have to clean up the curriculum. We'd, what would we want to do in terms of who we'd want to work with? And um, I asked my students, well, will you do this with me? And they go, absolutely. And so that summer we co-founded and co-launched the National We Are America project. And it's been just one of the most powerful, um, powerful things that I've been doing in the last three years, um, and 
the just really the most meaningful work um, because I get to co-create and co-lead a project with my former students. Um, and for the last now four years, we have been working with teachers across the country. Um, so we have We Are America Teaching Fellows and um, we meet with them virtually uh, every month. And my students mentor them, which is really powerful role reversal of students mentoring teachers. They sometimes zoom into their classes around the country um, to talk with um, our teachers' students. Um, and so then there are students mentoring students. Um, and we work with our teachers and their students to tell their own stories of self, to claim their own American identities. Um, and then they each publish books, um, just like the one that my students published back in 2018, that they share out in their community. Um, and it's been such a, a beautiful and powerful project to be able to collaborate with teachers across the country, um, to collaborate and learn from my former students and work together on this to support teachers and students across the country. And I mean, we've now worked with classrooms in 25 plus states and more than 25 states. Um, and um, there are more than 500 stories of young people up on our website, which was created by one of my former students, who's one of my colleagues now, who's an amazing web designer. Um, and just creating these opportunities to learn from our young people um, and having at the heart of it, working with um, my former students, um, these just amazing young people. So that's one example of uh, a project that came out of our class. It's now grown in ways we had no way of knowing about at the beginning. Um, I'm so impressed. If you want to take a glass of, if you want to drink, I'm sorry. Every time I'm speaking, the the Zoom is recording me, and every time you're speaking, Zoom is recording you. So if I'm speaking right now, it's a great time to drink drink water if you like. Okay. Um, I feel like this is your fourth book. Like you're the like just the you describing your units with your students. I think you need to. So you looked at the with this book we're currently looking at the historical perspectives that leads to the present. But I also think you need a. Um, another book where you're like, okay, here's what I do in my classroom. Um, and then you show us like a year of units. That would be a book I would like buy in a second and give out to like 12 teachers right away. <laughs> Amazing. Well, um, I, I will keep that in mind for thinking about book number four, but also too, I mean, the We Are America project, we have this um, more than 100 page curriculum. So uh, we are always looking for, I mean, we'll look for a new cohort of teachers uh, in the spring to work with next year. Um, and so, yes, it's not a book, but it's a book that we are helping others create because they're writing their own books. Um, but it, it's powerful to, to do this work together. And I definitely I interweave some of these stories about the We Are America project and some of these other projects in Making Americans. Um, so you get small, um, small windows into that work as well. So Making American is the prelude and then the fourth book will be a deep dive. And so the seed has been planted and may it grow like a bamboo tree. Excellent, I love that. For listeners, that's um, an inside joke that we have just now because uh, Jessica has a forest of bamboo trees. And I was like, wait, how are they so green in the winter in Massachusetts? It's like, oh yeah, they're just green all year. I'm like, okay. Let's start talking about your book. Chapter one is about the Americanization movement. Uh, what is it? And can you describe its history and what it looks like presently? 
Absolutely. So um, the book explores eight stories of the past, um, eight moments that have transformed our schools um, from uh, Supreme Court cases, laws, um, other cases and movements um, that have had a real impact in our schools today, but many of which are not known. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say um, that I did not know many of these historical stories before I set out to write this book. Um, the first historical story I open with is the story of the Americanization movement, um, which happened in uh, schools in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Um, and this was a time in uh, American education where educators and schools were trying to rapidly, quote unquote, Americanize immigrant students. Um, there was a, a large influx of immigrants, particularly from Southern and Eastern Europe at the time. Um, and many educators um, were trying to rapidly assimilate um, and sometimes forcibly assimilate uh, immigrant students by having them assimilate and adopt Anglo-Saxon traditions for the most part. Um, and so as much as possible, there was an emphasis on um, not practicing um, your traditions and your cultures and not maintaining your language and instead adopting what many educators saw as the the uh, the American culture, the American um, traditions. Um, but again, it was a very, very narrow sense of what it meant to be American and very much in a, an Anglo-Saxon tradition. Um, indeed, my great-grandfather, Daniel, um, experienced the Americanization movement. So he arrived as a seven-year-old um, in New York City. Um, he was a refugee from um, what is now Ukraine. And he arrived in New York City in 1906. Um, and at that time, uh, schools were not a place that welcomed or wanted his culture, his history, his religion, his language. Um, and it had a profound impact on young people. Um, and so I explore this area of history and also look at some of the, the folks who were involved in this education because there were interesting things going on at this time. So I, I tell the story of Julia Richmond, who um, was the first woman and actually first Jewish um, district superintendent in New York City, who, definitely had assimilationist views um, and um, yet at the same time also is interesting and important I think for us to study because she was seeing all of these immigrant students come into the school system and not be supported at all and many of them dropping out. And so she went to work in the Lower East Side where lots of new immigrants were coming in, including my family and um, set up an experiment that um, she asked to create classes for new arrivals um, that would be like a six month primer on language and culture with the hope that it would help them succeed in school after that for six months. Um, and that really became a blueprint for how a lot of schools think about um, supporting immigrant students today bridge having come from one country and then creating new homes here. Um, and so while there are definitely um, parts of Julia Richmond's approach that um, I don't particularly agree with. Um, there's a lot to learn and really powerful lessons in how she was thinking about we shouldn't just be, schools shouldn't just be letting immigrant students um, essentially drop out of school um, without any supports. 
Um, but the Americanization movement was a really interesting time period. And I think it's then powerful to look at how uh, change has happened over the last 150 years. Um, so if we look at that time period where so many um, students, language, culture, religion, heritage were not welcome and wanted to how uh, the approach to immigrant education has changed, um, that transformation has happened through the courageous and persistent work of educators and organizers and families and community members and lawyers and others um, over the last 150 years who've stood up to schools in many different ways, including challenging the segregation of immigrant students, the exclusion of undocumented students, and the refusal to provide language supports for students still mastering English. Um, and so this is really our starting place to then um, look at the journey of immigrant education over the last 150 years, and also to note too that it's not always linear, um, that there are examples of uh, both progress and then um, swings back in ways that we seem to be backtracking and not embracing multilingualism or multiculturalism, that it's definitely not always linear, um, but that progress has happened because of the courageous and the persistent work of so many different people uh, across time. Yeah, I think we're in with a, one of those phases right now where, where there's the pendulum is swinging backwards. Um, but I am always inspired by teachers who are saying, no, this is not okay, what we're doing. And then they, um, maybe, it's, I'm thinking about MLK, and he said, like, the arc of history leans towards social justice, right? And so we're, it, it two steps back, but it continues to swing forward with uh, work like teachers like yourself. Let's talk about chapter two, which is about settlement house. Can you talk about this movement? Yeah. Um, so. Uh, the Settlement House has at the heart of it uh, the story of Jane Addams, um, who ends up becoming the first American woman to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And she co-founded um, Whole House in the late 1800s in immigrant-rich um, Chicago neighborhood. And Whole House, uh, which was a settlement house, um, really helped spark settlement houses across the country in the settlement house movement. Um, which we can think about as uh, community centers that are trying to support communities in a whole host of different ways. Um, and some of, indeed, some of these settlement houses do exist still today. Um, and they are the blueprint for modern day community schools, for neighborhood community centers. And also um, a lot of her work is considered a, a blueprint for the modern field of social work. Um, and, so Adams creates Whole House with others, and they are in so many different ways advocating for their community and working with and supporting their community. Um, one of the things that I think is really powerful about her work that I write about is the ways in which she believed in the strengths of immigrant families and immigrant students at a time where many folks, particularly many educators, didn't see the strengths. We just talked about the Americanization movement where the, the traditions, languages, cultures, histories, um, skills of immigrants were not necessarily wanted. Um, but what Jane Addams really sees and what I found really powerful about her work is that public schools are failing immigrant students because they are teaching them to abandon their heritage, to abandon their language. Um, they're not taking advantage of the many strengths of um, their students who are in their classroom. She has this quote, like we send young people to Europe to see Italy, but we don't 
utilize Italy when it's here in the classroom. Um, and so just really intensely seeing the strengths of immigrant children and all they bring to the classroom in terms of their knowledge, in terms of their cultures, in terms of the language. And then also in particular too, seeing and recognizing the importance and strengths of immigrant families. Um, that recognizing how schools are driving a wedge between immigrant children and immigrant families um, during the Americanization movement. Um, as schools are really pushing and pressuring students to uh, abandon their history, their language, their culture, um, which does often drive a wedge or did often drive a wedge between uh, parents and children. And she um, sees that, A, this is absolutely wrong, that we need to be bringing families and children together. And we also have so much to learn from our families. And just one of the... Um, strategy she uses is, and she does this also in her advocacy and her writing, but one of the small strategies she does at uh, Whole House in Chicago is she creates a labor museum. And in this labor museum, she is elevating and creating space for folks to learn about sewing and textiles and um, pottery and basket weaving and a lot of the, the, school, the skills and tools that immigrant families are bringing at the time um, that maybe aren't being recognized and celebrated and valued um, in a now industrializing society where there's a lot of factories, um, but showing like these are really powerful skills and tools and um, crafts that we should be studying. Um, and not just elevating it in the community for the community as a whole, but particularly for young people. And she tells the story of uh, a young girl who had been embarrassed by her mother um, until at some point she went into this museum um, and they hold craft um, lessons and workshops there where uh, immigrant families are teaching um, their, their craft. Um, and so really seeing them as teachers in our community. And uh, this little girl realizes that her mother is a teacher and has, is a, is a craftswoman and has so much to teach others. And she is no longer embarrassed by her mother. Um, and so that shift in perspective of seeing parents as teachers in our community, as people who are valued in our community, um, I found really powerful from the work that Jane Addams did. Um, the community school movement also has, as I was saying in the beginning, uh, threads and um, really impacts the work we see today. And so in that chapter, I pair it with a profile of a school today in um, Aurora, Colorado, that is five schools working together to create a community school approach. And you really see the, the ways in which that community school approach has resonance with what Jane Addams did a hundred years earlier. And that community school approach is where these five schools really see their schools as vibrant community hubs. I think so often our schools are open at like 7 a.m. and then they close at three and then they sit empty. Um, and this, uh, these five schools, the Aurora Action Zone, really envisioned their schools as vibrant hubs from sunrise to sundown. Um, and it would be places for students, but also for um, families, also for local nonprofits and businesses, and they'd be all using and working, collaborating in the space, and that everyone benefited when we created these connections and communities and opportunities to learn from each other. And so they're doing really powerful work 
um, by tapping into the strengths of their community, seeing those strengths that the local hospital, the nonprofits, the businesses, groups of immigrant families bring to the work they do in the classroom with their students. Um, and I see so many parallels with uh, some of the work that Jane Adams and others were doing in Whole House um, and in the work they were doing to promote settlement houses at the turn of the century. I'm so inspired by schools. Every time I hear how they are partnering with families and communities to, and this is really um, like an assets-based approach to instruction and like bringing in the community and bringing the school to the community as well. And so what a great part of that. Can you tell us about, let me go back to chapter one. Actually, each chapter you ha you interview your students. And so I feel like I missed chapter one. Can you tell us about the story in chapter one and connecting to Americanization? Yeah, so um, yeah, so each chapter um, explores one story of the past, one story of the present, and one story of the personal. Um, and the chapters are... Um, basically from all these stories, and I'll go to your question about chapter one, but all these stories that I learned in the past, the present, and personal, um, from these, I, I found that really the, the heart of this book is belonging, and how do we nurture a sense of belonging for our students, um, and lessons around what it takes to nurture that sense of belonging. And so what I found through learning these stories of the past, the present, and the personal is that there were eight essential elements of belonging. Um, that were important for us as educators, as members of our community, to be thinking about in reimagining immigrant education. And so each chapter is named for one of those elements of belonging. And those elements of belonging are just briefly opportunities for new beginnings, supportive communities, assurances of security, opportunities to dream, committed advocates, recognition of students' strengths and assets, acceptance for who students are and where they come from, and opportunities for students to develop their voice and for us to value their voices. Um, and so chapter one is about new beginnings. And so thinking about new beginnings through the lens of the past, the present, and the personal. And so we think about new beginnings first with the Americanization movement and how educators and also young people understood those new beginnings 100 years ago. And uh, the, that's the past and the present. Um, there is a school that I got to learn from in Houston, Texas called Las Americas, which is a school, it's a newcomer school for students who've been in the country less than a year. And it's how they are creating new homes here right at the beginning, right when they come here. Um, and then the story of the personal for that first chapter in New Beginnings is looking at my student, Srinit, who is um, from Cambodia, who is the daughter of um, uh, genocide survivors, and talking about her dreams, um, her, her desire to go to college, her deep, deep commitment and um, dedication to her, her learning, her academic learning and her schooling, um, her just... Uh, just ferocious curiosity. Um, she talks about, or she shares in the book, and we talk about um, her love of computer science. And I still remember that day where she came into my class. It was during lunch, um, lunchtime in my class. A lot happens. Um, it was your sophomore year, and she was really interested in computer science, but she couldn't take a computer science class yet. 
And so she just started teaching herself computer science. And then she came in to show me her first um, game that she had coded. And she was so proud and so excited about that game. Um, and then she went on in our school to take all the computer science classes she could. She maxed out. There were no more computer science classes for her. So she continued to teach herself um, online um, to build her computer science skills. She's now in uh, university studying computer science and entrepreneurship. Um, and so it's thinking about um, how do we understand new beginnings as our students create new homes here? Um, and what are those lessons we can draw from the past? What are those lessons we can draw from schools in the present? And then really for me, this heart of the book is the personal, what are the lessons we can draw from our young people of how they experience, um, in this case, new beginnings as they create new homes here and new lives here. Well, we only have about 15 more minutes of the podcast, and I've, we've just, just scratched like, the first two chapters. There are a few more chapters. Um, which, which chapter would you like to talk about before I ask you more questions about like instruction for newcomers? Like, I have any of them, whichever you are excited to talk about. I'm happy to talk about any of them. It's fun to share these stories. I think they're really powerful. <laughs> well, you pick which one really um, still like currently tugs at your heart a little more. Like, which one is like... Okay, tell me this story today. Like, which one wants to be told today? Ooh, um, so well, I can touch on maybe one, possibly two. Um, so you had um, you had asked me about um, we were talking earlier before the podcast um, about the importance of advocates, um, which is um, chapter five of my book, um, that need for advocates in our community. And I'll just very briefly talk about um, two of the stories there um, and then maybe talk just a tiny bit about another chapter. But um, in the story of advocates, there is, um, it opens with the story of President Lyndon B. Johnson, who, um, which I did not know when I started out um, writing this book, but um, his first job was uh, a teacher. Um, he was a teacher at a segregated Mexican school on the, the border of Texas and Mexico, because at the time in the 1930s um, in the U.S. Southwest, um, many schools were segregated between white schools and, quote unquote, Mexican schools. And that was his first job. And watching the impact of that work with his students um, infused the work he did as a politician and particularly as a president. He would go on um, to help um, advocate for and then sign, once it was passed, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965, which is uh, at the time and still um, really the, the foundational federal legislation that um, supports and impacts schools. Um, and he talks about the importance of education in the, the speeches he gives in advocating for and then signing this legislation of how important schools are to him, to the country, to the future of the country. And you see the impact of his teaching in those speeches. Um, he also passed, um, or he advocated for and then signed once it was passed by Congress, the Hart-Celler Immigration Nationality Act of 1965, which 1924, um, the immigration law established a, a quota system that was highly discriminatory uh, against many immigrants from around the world, um, really preventing immigrants from um, large parts of the world from being able to enter the country. And the Hart-Celler Immigration Act 
uh, does away with these quotas. Um, and there, um, it, it really transforms immigration into this country after 1965. Um, but you see just the impact of, the, or I see the impact of LBJ's first job in um, the, the advocacy and the work he does as a president, um, and then the impact it then has on our schools today. Um, he goes back to the school he taught at, um, at the board of this formerly segregated school, um, and gives a speech to that school. He stays in touch with his former students and invites them to the White House. Um, and LBJ, of course, is a very complicated figure, um, and as so many um, figures in our history are, but what I found powerful about his story were these ways in which he was advocating for immigrant origin students and for education and seeing those threads of how his early experience in teaching um, seems to have impacted um, his advocacy work. Um, that chapter also tells a really powerful story of uh, a team of educators today working in Guilford, North Carolina. Um, Myra Hayes and her team for years had been working to support their immigrant origin students. They have a school district of 126 schools in Guilford. And some school, one school is all recent uh, immigrant and refugee students. And then they have schools that maybe have five uh, English learners. And so they had thought about all sorts of different ways to support their students. And some of them were successful and some of them weren't, or they'd be successful at time. And then they would be less successful. And what was powerful about the work that I learned from them is that they just kept trying and experimenting with approaches um, that they were never satisfied. And they found this approach a couple of years ago that um, had them rethink literacy. And uh, it was an approach that was um, created by a partnership between a professor in California and a practitioner in New York. And they take this approach and they bring it back to the district. And what this approach does is instead of, which is often the case in many uh, English language classes, is simplifying text. And the sort of the idea that we'll teach simplified text and then we'll build up to more complicated um, text. This said, no, we're going to be exploring juicy, complex sentences and text from the beginning, from day one when you arrive, but we're going to do in a way where you're really supported, that the lessons are very scaffolded so that you can access that material, manipulate these sentences and play with these sentences. You'll have fun and you'll be excited to do it. Um, and they took this approach and they set about helping their teachers across 126 schools reimagine literacy, which is like really hard to do across a single classroom or across the school, let alone 126 schools. And they did it in all of the big and small ways from holding um, sort of full district PD to group level PD to lots of check-ins to then newsletters where they go around and highlight success to share it out with all of the other teachers, thinking about back to earlier in our conversation about how teaching is often isolating of really creating a community where teachers were able to learn from each other so it wasn't isolating. Um, but then also in the small ways so that Myra Hayes, EL director for the entire district, if a particular teacher was struggling, would show up in their classroom, her showing up in the classroom to say, can I, can I help you find uh, readings and writings for your kids to do? Can I help model a lesson with you? Um, she and her team were doing this across the district that it was both the big ways and the, the individual ways of showing up for each teacher and meeting them where they were. And then seeing in the course of two to three years, 
real success, test scores shooting up, um, students being really excited to come to classes, students seeing connections in their academic classes um, between their English learner classes and their, their other classes they were taking, teachers who are not working primarily with immigrant origin students coming to the team being, what are you doing? This is really cool. The student is speaking in my class. They never spoke before my class. Can I learn what you're doing and apply it to my class? Um, and just seeing the ways that they're advocating for their teachers, for their students, and then doing the work in just being there for their teachers, for their students in every possible way so that they're able to do it across the district. Um, and so that's one example. Um, I think just another that's really calling to me too and thinking about advocates is we talked earlier about the importance of student strengths um, and seeing um, and recognizing valuing those strengths and another school that's I found really powerful I mean all of the schools I profile have been really powerful for me and I think we have lessons to learn but one of them um, which you and I were talking about earlier is the International School at Langley Park in Maryland and that school is for all recent immigrant and refugee students. Um, it's a high school, just um, uh, students still mastering English, um, all relatively new to the country. And uh, Carla, uh, the principal of that school, Carlos Beato, um, was an immigrant student himself and um, many years earlier. And when he created this high school and founded this high school, he wanted to create a school that looked nothing like any of the schools he had seen, he had taught in, he had experienced himself as a student um, or as a teacher. And it was a school that really built on the strengths of their students. Um, and there's so many ways he does that in the, the work they've done in the school of building community and connections with students and teachers. So they have advisory groups and different classes where they're really thinking about the identities of their students and the ways they'll connect with particular teachers or other students in the class. Um, they are thinking about instruction through a competency-based lens. Um, so often we might struggle with one particular skill um, and we might need to take longer on that, but in traditional teaching, we might get an F and then we fail in that unit or that lesson or that um, maybe that semester, and then we have to repeat the whole thing. Um, and their approach is, you know, they have many strengths in one field, but they might need to take more time in this other skill. And that's okay. And that shouldn't um, hurt them long-term. Um, Daniel Sass, the assistant principal, has this great metaphor of driver licenses is you and I both might take the driver's license test and um, I might fail the first time. And so I study some more and I go take it again. I might fail a second time and I study some more and I take it again. I pass on my third try. But when we both get on the road and we both have a driver's license, we're both drivers. Um, it doesn't like you're not like you don't get like to drive faster because you did it in one time. You don't get to use special driving roads because you learned and were able to pass your driving test the first time versus me. We're both drivers on the road. And thinking about learning that way where we're not, um, there, there are not um, benefits necessarily for getting it faster if you're learning and mastering content that some students will learn faster than others. Um, but we don't want to be saying, oh, because you took more time to learn this, you somehow are lesser than, or you fail in that F 
follows you on your transcript um, if you're mastering the content. Um, and so thinking about uh, learning differently, but also thinking about how uh, their students are leaders. I mean, rarely do we see our recent immigrant students be leaders of their sports teams or leaders of debate or on student government or in AP classes. And at the school, you see them in all of those spaces um, and really seeing that our students have many different strengths. And then they also have some challenges in supporting them where they need those supports and also letting them shine um, where they really, really shine. Um, and so that's another powerful school that's doing beautiful work seeing strengths. Um, so I know that you've really highlighted, you're so humble, you've highlighted the, what schools have done around the U.S. And so that's why um, the, I think our next interview, we'll talk about what do you do in your classroom? So we'll take the 100 page curriculum and we'll uh, section it out into future chapter books and chapters for your future book. So we'll uh, collaborate that way because I think teachers want to hear and I definitely want to hear what does your classroom instruction look like? You've already shared with us the history side of it. And then you've shared with us what schools are doing. And now I'd love to see what and learn from what you're doing. So you Thank have... you. I would say too, that we have so much, we've talked a lot about the schools and about the history that there is so much to learn from our young people. Um, and I said a little bit with Jane Nitz and her story, but they're really um, the heart of this book. And it's them that I, I think we have so much to learn from, from Carla, who's in the Seeing Strengths chapter, who came back to my classroom for years to teach um, recent immigrant students and volunteer um, on the days off from when she was in college, because she thought it was important to advocate for other students um, to Sophia, who is um, a refugee from uh, Iraq. Carla's from the Dominican Republic. Sophia is a refugee from Iraq who um, worked with her community on one of those uh, action civics projects to help create, uh, make our schools and our community safer. Um, to Robert, who's just an extraordinary human being who um, fled violence in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and just seeing all of the ways in which he has built community and become a leader in our, our school community and in our community at large, that we have so much to learn from them and their stories that they so generously and courageously share. Um, and I think if we're really thinking about reimagining schools, it's them that we got to learn from. Oh, you're so humble. Um, you said early in the podcast, uh, students do remarkable things. And I would like to end with students do remarkable things when they're in the presence of remarkable teachers like yourself, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you. It means a lot. It's, it's an honor to work with them. And it's uh, an honor to learn with you and so many other educators. So thank you. Thank you. I'm excited for our next podcast where we'll talk about um, everything you do in your how you structure instruction for newcomers. So uh, this is a little teaser for everybody. Well, thank you again, Jessica. Thank you. And I'm excited for our next conversation. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast. My invitation is to check out my three courses on English Learner Portal. One is on creating the conditions for MLs to thrive, one on teacher collaboration, and one based on my co-authored book with Beth Skelton called Long-Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals. Now, on to our recap.
I think you will really enjoy this book because throughout each chapter, we get to see what other schools and teachers are doing to serve newcomers. It's just like Twitter. I see something on Twitter and I get inspired to see instruction in a different way. It's the same thing with Jessica's book. We get to see different newcomer programs and services, and we get to reimagine what that would look like in our context. The main message here is that newcomers have needs that are unique, and there are things we can do to meet their needs to be in a safe, inclusive, and equitable school environment. Though our context might look different, their needs remain the same. I hope you're inspired by this podcast. I definitely was inspired by Jessica. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. 